Welcome to another bonus episode of the Tech Meme Ride Home. I'm your host, as always, Brian McCullough. We have a friend of the pod on today, someone that's been on before, Ed Zitron. Um, you might know him from the socials, uh, but also from his uh, newsletter, Where's Your Ed At? Uh, but also, up, up front here, Ed, uh, you're, you've just launched a, uh, a podcast, right? Yes, me and iHeartRadio and CoolZone Media have launched Better Offline's weekly tech podcast. It's going to be something special. I'm pumped up for it. Right. We're recording actually before the launch, but it's it's Better Offline. Um, so is it an interview show or round? So it's a mixture of narrative stuff, interviews, uh -huh. oh. and sometimes me running through a story with someone talking with me. So the first episode is actually about the rot economy, which is a greater economic theory I have with with Robert Evans of Cool Zone Media. Second episode is going to be about the Vision Pro, for example, and that's just me talking. But actually, I do talk with the Wall Street Journal's Joanna Stone, Stern during that. Oh, she's going to kill me for that one, Joanna Stern. Um, well, that sounds great. Um, as I said, we're recording before the launch, so I can't vouch for it yet, but I'll uh, subscribe wherever you just get your podcast. Just have to trust me. Yes. yes. Betteroffline.com. We'll get you everything. Awesome. Um, okay. I'm having you on to do a couple of stories that I sort of didn't give proper um, time to on the show for various reasons. Um, first, uh, there has been, over the last month or so, a bunch of controversy around Substack, the newsletter platform, which your right. newsletter was on. Could you briefly, just real quick, in like 30 seconds, kind of summarize what the controversy was? And then I want to hear about like your involvement in the controversy as well since you had to leave Substack. So in November of last year, 2023, they there was an Atlantic story that found out that there were Substacks just that were outright Nazis, Nazi imagery, Nazi topics, Nazi stuff. And as a Jew, it's kind of vile to read any of that on there. When this was raised over the cut the following months to Substack, they went, well Look, look, it's just, you know, we, we don't, we're, we're a free, free speech company. We, we, they're not breaking any of our very weirdly written rules. So we're not going to do anything. So there was a group of people led by Maris Cabas, I believe, uh, who did Substackers Against Nazis, who basically called this out to Substack, published it on their Substack newsletters and said, Substack, please just ban the Nazis. At that point, Casey Newton of Platformer waded in, spoke with Substack. Substack said, well, what have you got for us? Casey shared several Nazi Substacks with, with them. They then said, oh, some of these have broken our terms of service for inciting violence. Casey then published a headline that basically said Substack will ban Nazi publications. This was taken as gospel. Casey is a good guy, but his article misled people, in my opinion. And then... Basically, a few people, myself included, reported that, no, they banned five Nazis, five Nazi publications, and then Casey, good on him, actually left, left Substack for Ghost a day or two later. Now, in my case, I decided to leave the moment I saw everything. And honestly, I should have left Substack a long time ago. moment that you, plas you platform people like Jesse Single and anti-trans freaks like that, you cannot. There's no reason I should have been on that platform. I think I, stay I speak for everyone. Well, I probably can't speak for everyone, but everyone should leave Substack right now for the people that they've supported and the people that they choose to support now. And the vacuous argument I hear is, oh, well, it's only a few Nazis. Tell that to my goddamn grandmother who lost mo like tell that to my family who went in big goddamn ovens in the Holocaust, you asshole. Sorry, I'm a little bit 
pissy about this one. But I still see people going on Substack. I see LGBTQ newsletters on Substack. What do you think the Nazis want for it? Like, it's just disgraceful. Well, and let me this. Anyway, I'm keep kind of going off there. I feel like the, the, the moral question is one thing, but if, if you are someone who makes your living with a newsletter, and maybe you have been on Substack, and you blood, sweat, and tears to get the followers that you have, what is the calculus in terms of moving away? Um, are, number one... Is Substack really the superior platform in, in terms of the tools and stuff that they give you? Is there no, no one else that's comparable? Number two, is it, is it is it risking your business if you do jump ship? So first and foremost, Substack is very easy to use, and the tools they have are very easy. They just it really is turnkey. Ghost, which I moved to, is not quite as turnkey. I had to work with a guy called Ryan over at Outpost, who really did a lot of the stuff, but. And I understand if people aren't moving because it's difficult. And indeed, the first time I sent my newsletter to my 22,000 subscribers, at first, a lot of them didn't get it. It made me freak out. If you move to Ghost and that happens, it will be okay. It just takes one go. Anyway, but the, it's not the superior platform. They trumpet their network effects and their recommendations as a way of finding new subscribers. Eh, only kind of. And Substack really picks their winners, kind of like the App Store does. It's like, well done, you've sent more people to formerly platformer. Like, if you're one of the big Substacks, Substack sends you more traffic, and it sucks. So I don't judge people who have stayed because it's hard to move. What I do judge are the people who have started new newsletters, who ostensibly are against Nazis, who chose Substack in the first place. It's not really much better. Like, it's it does podcasts a little easier than other platforms. If you need to launch a podcast and... And a newsletter Substack is just easier. But at the same time, I don't want to even slightly contribute to a company that supports this. And it is really easy to just ban Nazis. Well, that, there's the famous analogy that people have used for years. I can't remember who first did it about the, the Nazi bar, where the bartender yes. kicks out the Nazi and, and the, the patron says, why'd you do that? He said, because if you don't do it right away, within a week, you are a Nazi bar because more of them come, more of them come. So it's it's that sort of parable of guilt by association. And people made the argument that, listen, any sort of platform that isn't completely a protocol, you are making editorial and curational decisions mm -hmm. one way or another if you have terms of service. Um, right. So where where is Substack at at the moment? I, a lot of some prominent people that I read their their newsletters have left, but do we know if it has there been a, an exodus? I would say so. Uh, Molly White left, Casey Newton and Platformer left. Uh, I don't know what others have stayed or left it. I don't have the raw numbers, but Substack was already, based on reports from The Verge a year or two ago, already not particularly profitable, What by which I mean not profitable at all. But also, quite frankly, I think they will continue fine from this. I think that they're not going to shut down over this, but I do think that this tolerance means that they are going to become the gab of newsletters. And it will be a slower burn, but guess what? You tolerate it, becomes the Nazi bar. But I've seen a few people start newsletters recently on Substack who really need to check themselves because it's disgraceful for anyone who supports any cause that is not just hard right stuff to put their newsletter on there. It's one thing if it was an established project. It was a pain in the ass for me to leave. I'm not going to lie about that. But if you were starting something new, 
and you choose Substack, that is a choice you are making in the full knowledge of the company you are supporting and the people that they in turn support. Shifting slightly to throwing your lot in with uh, platforms, um, Chris and I spoke to the CEO of Blue Sky uh, last week. They're mm -hmm. doing a lot of interesting things in social. I'm curious your take as again someone that is very online and and builds their audience that way i get the sense that there are different sort of cultures that have moved to different sort of places like mm -hmm. over at threads you have the controversy about some people about uh, suppressing news and so some people say go to blue sky because it's innovative but then some people don't like blue sky because of like just the tone there, and maybe Threads is a little more influencery. Um, so first of all, give me your sense because I've said on the show I want to keep people abreast of. For for me doing this podcast, uh, where is Twitter at? Where has everyone gone? What's your sense? Who's still at Twitter? Where has everybody that you care about gone, or most of them? Where are we with the diaspora? So I think that there is a much louder contingent of journalists who claim they've left Twitter than actually have. I think a lot of news is still there. Threads, well, first of all, let's stay on Twitter, X, whatever it's called these days, cesspool right now. Every third post, someone responds with ass in bio. And I'm not kidding. It's that common. That place is falling apart. Question is how fast. But journalists are still there. Sports is still there. Sports really has found a home on Twitter. Threads is trying, but Threads is also just a kind of a crappy social network. It's not, it's ugly. Comments are weird on it. The algorithm sucks. It's full of the worst influencers. It feels like 2009 Twitter, mm. which was very boring and was very normy facing. But also, you go on Threads and it doesn't even feel like you're speaking to normal people. It just feels like everyone's doing a puppet show of some sort. It feels to me and like it's it's a, it's a social network for people that have been trained to be on social networks for 20 years and know, yeah. okay, this is new. I'm going to plant my flag here and grow my follower base. Everybody is all about growing that follower base because they've seen that happen from previous cycles. And so it's like, we've been trained. Here's a new thing. I got to establish myself. I got to grow my follower count. That's, to me, the problem with people's behavior on threads at the moment. But also, by that logic, engagement on there is trash. I have like five and a half thousand followers. I sometimes, and this is not me just being like, my posts are wretched, because sometimes they are, but the engagement on there is trash. You'll get like a reply every so often, a like every so often. It's as bad as Twitter was. It really sucks. Blue Sky, on the other hand, very lively. They started it with a contingent of extremely online posters and found out, and fanned out from there even. And you're starting to find more normal people on there now. It feels like mid-2010s Twitter, or maybe late-2010s Twitter. A lot of fun very energetic. It has its problems. It has dogpiling problems because when you get above a certain follower count, everyone can see your replies and everyone decides to get involved so people can get jumped on a bit there. This is a problem with Twitter. This is not a problem that's easy to solve, but Blue Sky does it where if you delete a thread that people are responding to, everything disappears. If you block someone, the whole thing disappears. This kind of cuts down on that more poisonous chatter. But in general, I love Blue Sky. Most of the people I know are in Blue Sky. I think that if journalists could try it, really, put, I really encourage you. It feels like it used to on Twitter. It's intimate, fun, cool community. NPR just joined. I love Blue Sky. I really do. Threads, it's almost as if they put effort in to make sure it's not a social network. 
suppression of news is insane. Why would you do that? Other than you just don't want the heat. So now it's just this swill of people having histrionic episodes because they click. There is an account there that goes by like God or something saying, oh, there's a bug. Adam Masseri, help me with a bug. Thousands of likes, tons of responses. No explanation as to what the bug is other than it is very bad. It feels like an entire social network designed like one of those forward, forward, forward email threads you used to get in like the early 2000s, where it was like the government is taking away social security mm. due to due to George Bush's new program, and it's like so clearly fake. Mm -hmm. It's just, it sucks. It's wretched. It, it, I, want to, I want to use it in the sense that I'll take anything I can get as far as promotional stuff goes, well, but it for, isn't even for, good for that. For the, uh, this is a, a litmus test. For the new podcast, where if you could only do one post, which network would, would it still be X, Twitter? I mean, you probably, probably still, still have, Twitter. You probably still have a larger follower. I still... Well, I have 67,000 followers on Twitter, yep. and I have somewhere in the, like 19,500 on Blue Sky. I get more engagement on most things on Blue Sky. Weirdly enough, though, some podcast-related stuff, I get way more on Twitter. It's weird. I don't know. And I'll use Twitter until I'm kicked off the service or it sinks into the sea like the Titanic. Do you uh, mess around with um, Mastodon at all? Oh, God, no. No, I'm sorry. Mastodon people seem so dedicated to the cause, and I respect that there's a unfederated thing. But every time I try and log on, they're like, it's very simple. What happens is you load these three plugins, and then you type in passwords to these eight windows. And then when that's complete, then you can make your account. I have an account on one Mastodon thing, but there's multiple servers. And every time I say something like this, I get an email from someone saying, it's very simple. And then it, like, there's an 11-step thing. I'm like, I'm no, I can't do it. Also, it sounds like the culture there is kind of weird. Mm. I've heard some very strange things about how aggressive people can be on there. And I just, there's no, I don't, if I need to find a, a network where everyone's going to be mad at me, I already have two or three of them. It, it reminds me very much of uh, Usenet and, and bulletin boards in the early 90s. How they Yes. Like, no, it really has like web for this whole thing has deep like web forum antagonist energy. Like a, three competing forums from the nineties about a video game. It's right. so that I kind of admire this. People yeah, were saying crypto. <laughs> well, people said that crypto felt like the old internet. No, this feels like two, two or three different forums that just hate each other for no good reason. Other than they are vaguely competitive, nothing stopping you from posting on both. They can coexist, but you hate each other. I kind of love that. I just hope people don't get hurt. Obviously. When you go through airport security, there's one line where the TSA agent checks your ID and another line where a machine scans your bag. The same thing happens in enterprise security, but instead of passengers and luggage, it's end users and their devices. These days, most companies are pretty good at the first part of the equation where they check user identity, but user devices can roll right through authentication without getting inspected at all. In fact, 47% of companies allow unmanaged, untrusted devices to access their data. That means an employee can log in from a laptop that has its firewall turned off and hasn't been updated in six months. Or worse, that laptop might belong to a bad actor using employee credentials. Collide 
finally solves the device trust problem. Collide ensures that no device can log into your Octa-protected apps unless it passes your security checks. Plus, you can use Collide on devices without MDM, like your Linux fleet, contractor devices, and every BYOD phone and laptop in your company. Visit collide.com slash ride to watch a demo and see how it all works. That's K-O-L-I-D-E dot com slash ride, collide.com slash ride. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Um. Real quick, uh, since you mentioned uh, that you're going to do an episode on the Vision Pro and you just wrote about it on your newsletter, give me your your three minutes takeaway uh, on the Vision Pro. Fascinating device, very annoying. I think I said in my newsletter, it's one of the most interesting and annoying devices I've ever used, if not the most. It is something where when it works, it feels like the future. If you have this endless desktop you can move around with these subtle gestures. It's really cool. And then one of the gestures goes wrong or you try the on-screen keyboard is truly awful in a way that Apple should be ashamed of. But also even when you plug in a Bluetooth keyboard, things go crazy. And I think the problem is that when you wear something on your face, these little bugs that might be more avoidable or forgivable on the computer or a phone are so much more claustrophobic. But Watching movies on it is incredible. I wrote my 4,600-word Vision Pro review and the script for the episode on the Vision Pro, sitting on the couch, just looking at it, typing on my magic keyboard, my cat on my lap, well, kind of on my legs, behind my keyboard. That was cool. The focus, I have severe ADHD that I'm medicated for. The focus it gives me is really great. But then again can give you a little headache. It can feel weird. Sometimes you put it on wrong. It doesn't feel right. There aren't enough apps. Basic things to get signal on there required me to do a series of things that are just ridiculous. I had to mirror my Vision Pro to the television and then scan the QR code with my phone. It just, the whole thing feels incomplete and it feels delivered in, the, oh, and also I should add the first few days with it were really bad because the fit was wrong. And the only reason I found out the fit was wrong was Reddit. Apple just hasn't really tried hard enough with this. And for $3,500 or more, if you get the higher storage on it, you'd expect just a teensy-weensy bit better, and it just isn't there. Are you one of those people that uh, is going to return before the return window closes? No, I I genuinely am going to use this. I'm going to use this to write. I am more focused. Like If I can't sit at a table with my laptop, I can't really write. I have to, I need to focus at the sit up thing. But on this, I can write thousands of words because you can twist the knob on the top of it, the digital crown, and it will drop away the world around you. And you could just focus on what's in front of you. And it's really cool. It works really, really well. Okay. I can focus on this thing in a way that no other device lets me. And this is why I'm so conflicted on it because 
there are moments where I've used it. I'm like, this is so cool. I'll watch a giant Queens of the Stone Age concert. I'll be talking to someone on text and signal while I do it. It feels very cool and new, and there's nowhere else I can do that. And then I will try and select the title of a Google Doc, and I won't be able to do it despite staring at it really intently with my eyes. Like, and it doesn't work. And there's and it just makes me wonder: Did nobody while testing this think? I wonder if anyone will use Google Docs, a product used by over, I think, over a billion people. You'd think you'd check that one, and if it didn't work, you'd think you'd contact Google and go, "Hey, hey, hey, this is Apple. You already pay us eighteen billion dollars a year to make Google the only search engine on the iPhone. Could you just fix this for us?" And then Google would have said no, and then there would have been an annoying argument. But there would have been an argument. It's just they they half-assed many parts of this. It just feels very un-Apple at times. And I've said this many times: the fact that they didn't launch with some big whiz-bang new app from a developer that wasn't possible before. They didn't have Disney create some new, you know, forty-minute three D. They, should have, they like, should have had a puzzle. I'm deadly serious. They should have had a puzzle company. This thing you you. You do your little gestures and you do things. Just have a thousand-piece puzzle company as the first thing. That would have been cool. Oh, yeah, you put the puzzle piece in the puzzle. I'd have done that all day. I'm an idiot. I love this crap. But they didn't even do that. It just feels so ramshackle at times. And you'd think that they would bother, but I think they know that people will buy this crap, me included, uh, without them really trying. Half a billion dollars they made off this damn thing now. wonder if they're selling it at a loss. I can't remember. Uh, I think probably break even. They they don't tend to ever sell anything at a loss. But um, two more, real quick. Give me your take on the metaverse generally, because you know, uh-huh. came out the other day and was like, you know, the Quest is already better than this. The Quest is already doing this. The, the thing that Apple's promising. You can talk to that if you want, but just generally, do you feel you, you almost were describing the the Vision Pro as? It's a work thing for you. It's a it's a productivity thing, but this idea yeah. of metaverse where it's like, well, I go live there. <laughs> um, where do you feel? Yeah, the, uh, there you go. It's just the metaverse either existed already or doesn't exist at all. We're not living in the computer yet, other than the fact we use it all day. So we're, I guess, we're already in the metaverse. Mark Zuckerberg just made that up, so I think he's made that up and has spent billions on it just so that people forget that Facebook did Cambridge Analytica. Like I, I don't think it's much more complex than that. I think the Quest 3 does absolutely not do what the Vision Pro does. I'm sure there are some like-for-like things and people will be wanky assholes. Oh, well, you can use a web browser on it. The Quest 3 is not as comfortable as the Vision Pro. It's not as smooth as the Vision Pro. The, you still have to use your little, your little clicky thingies. With it, it doesn't feel right. The Vision Pro actually, the eye gesture stuff and the the grasping stuff actually works. But also, of course, Mark Zuckerberg's going to say the Quest Three is better. He won't admit he messed up. He's a little scumbag. But also, the metaverse doesn't exist. We're not living in it. To do the thing that Mark Zuckerberg showed us in the Meta release video, you would have to have extrasensory interfaces. You'd have to have something that clicked into the site parts of the body. You can't wear things and have the experience he had. What he did was tantamount to what Magic Leap did in the mid-2010s, and nobody gave him shit about it. It was insane. Every journalist was like, oh, yeah, yeah, in the metaverse is here. Absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely 
letting the readers down. And now Mark Zuckerberg's talking about artificial, uh, uh, sorry, he's talking about AGI. He's talking about average general intelligence now. Every t- Alex Heath is like, yay, I can talk to Mark Zuckerberg right. again. With the limited amount of time we have left, I was going right. to, that was my last one. Um, give me the patented Ed Zitron take on the AI moment right now. Um, overhyped to you or overhyped for now, but definitely the future. I mean, it's as much the future as it was six years ago and five, ten years ago. I mean, we've been hearing about AI for a while. I think the generative AI thing is exciting because it's able to create something, but also I think it's I think they're running out of runway. I think they're running at the limit of what this thing can actually do. If you watch the Super Bowl commercial from Microsoft's co-pilot, you'll notice at one point it says, make me like a classic logo for Mike's truck shop. Or truck repair shop, actually. If you type that in, and when he did that, there were three or four usable logos, all of which said Mike's. When I put it in, only one said Mike's, and it was surrounded by just nonsense because these things can't even write English. They don't under, it's all math trying to say, what is the common other thing that comes after a, an M that comes next. in a truck logo? Yep. So I think it is overhyped because the tech industry needs a new thing to point out and say, this is why we're around. And I think that AI is approaching its upper limits, but also give me one killer app. A lot of people giving the Vision Pro a hard time, and they should. You should give Apple's a near $3 trillion company. You should bang on them. But you should also do the same with ChatGPT. Sam Altman should be roasted alive. Same with Satya Nadella. Same with Sundar Pashai. All these companies. Google is forcing Gemini. They replace the name of Bard to Gemini. They're generative AI. They are planning to, and they fired a lot of the assistant people. They're going to replace their assistant with it. J.R. Raphael from Computer World had a good thing about this, basically saying Google is trying to force a generative AI onto their assistant, despite it not doing the job. Right now, the moment we're seeing is not that AI is the future in a good way. It's that AI is being forced into everything so that these companies can continue to get double-digit growth every quarter. It's extremely annoying because there are useful things that this can do. New Samsung phones have AI in them. They can do live translation. They can do live voice, uh, voicemail transcription. Cool. Those are useful. Are those worth an industry where Sam Altman is trying to raise five to seven trillion dollars for a new chipset company? No, no, this whole thing feels like a con on some level. So, if I wanted to get more Ed hot takes like that, what was the name of the podcast? I can now uh, better offline, better, better offline. offline. You can go to betteroffline.com, you find the newsletter, you find the podcast, you find our beautiful new logo. It's really and something. The uh, the newsletter is Where's Your Ed At, which I can never see that name without the Basement Jack song. And that's uh, where it's from. Yeah. That is actually the original. That's the, the uh, providence of that title. I figured. I wonder how many people know that song. But uh, yeah, uh, great. Uh, I, I'm a loyal reader of the, um, of the newsletter, and uh, I look forward to the podcast. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me. 